1 Corinthians 11, uh, we're going to read just verses 2 and 3. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says now, 1 Corinthians 11, 2, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand, 1 Corinthians 11, 3, that Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, since this is difficult and controversial, I just thought I'd read that to you, and we'll skip it. We're going to move into chapter 12 now. I'm just kidding. We're not, we're not going to do that. So we teach verse by verse through the Bible, and as we do, we come to passages that are a little bit more prickly than others, and uh, they're not necessarily politically correct, but they are what they are, and this is the Word of God. And so uh, I want to encourage you to keep your heart and mind open as we go through this particular section. So what you'll notice in verse 3 is that Paul deals with the order of creation as it relates to worship issues by making appeal an appeal to the love relationship and submissive quality of Christ to God the Father. Now, what we'd like to say from that at the outset is that Christ, being the second person of the Holy Trinity, is equal with the Father. This is what we have taught, the church has taught for a couple millennia, it's, uh, of course, it was debated for a little bit of time, but here's what we have. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We know that Jesus submitted to his Father, and the result of his submission to the Father is, frankly, your salvation. When he wrestled in the Garden of Gethsemane and said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, he was wrestling with his humanity, as we all have to do. But he submitted to the Father's plan, and he said, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. When Jesus is praying in John 17, I'd like you to turn over there because I think it's a beautiful prayer that relates to what I'm getting at here. John 17, if you turn over there, Jesus' high priestly prayer, it's been called the night before he dies for his bride, the church. He prays these words. John 17, we're going to pick it up in verse 18. Again, he will appeal to the nature of the Godhead. John 17, 18. He says, as you sent me, praying to his Father, into the world, I also have sent them into the world. John 17, 19. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, verse 20, but for those also who believe in me through their word that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that, notice this, the world may believe that you sent me. The unity of the church will be a message to the world. The glory which you have given me, 22, I have given to them. That they may be one just as we are one. That's an amazing statement. Just as we are one, Father and Son, that they may be one. I in them and you in me. That they may be perfected in unity. So that the world may know that you sent me. 
and love them even as you have loved me. Let's turn back to 1 Corinthians. Now, as we study the passage, Paul will say that the head of Christ is God. This is from a commentary by Stephen Ohm. He says, whatever Paul means by the head of a wife is her husband can't be to denigrate, downplay, or threaten her stance as an equal because Christ also has a head. Paul is not saying anything about one's essence. The beauty of this passage here is that he roots this in the Trinitarian order. He is saying that in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal in being and essence. But they willingly choose to fulfill different functions and roles for the purpose of communicating communal love. The Son, he goes on to say, joyfully chooses to submit himself to the Father. Christianity recognizes the full equality and interdependence of the sexes, as we will see when we study the rest next week. Both were made in the image of God, male and female, Genesis 1.27. Both have God-given roles. Now, I will say this to you. As this passage deals largely with husbands and wives, we want to acknowledge that there are single ladies and women who are widows and widowers in our midst. So sometimes Bible passages will deal with a specific issue, but we have to acknowledge that there are wider situations going on here, and men and women are really before us. And I would say to you that as we have order in the home, we have order in the church, and that women are called to submit to elders and pastors who are males for the sake of God's order. Now what I'm saying to you is not politically correct, and some of the church has basically just decided that they're not going to obey this, or they're going to make a cultural argument. There are many people who accuse the Apostle Paul, our author of 1 Corinthians, and for that matter, two-thirds of the New Testament letters, of being a male chauvinist. In fact, there are people who say there are some areas where Paul wrote about such matters that he frankly just got it wrong. That's their argument. Now, I would like you to turn in light of that to the book of Acts, and I want you to see something about the Apostle Paul. This is Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. And uh, let's look at verses 15 and 16. So you got Acts and Romans just before 1 Corinthians. So Ananias is a little bit uh, perplexed why the Lord Jesus would pick Saul, the persecutor of the church. And this is a testimony of God's grace. Acts 9. Look at verse 15, and there's a dialogue going on as Ananias questions the Lord's choice. Have you ever done that before? Lord, are you sure? Lord responds, yeah, I'm sure. But the Lord said to him, go, Acts 9:15, for he, Saul, who becomes Paul, is what? He is a chosen instrument of mine. If you have it in the NIV, it says he is my chosen instrument. To bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him, I will show Saul who becomes Paul how much he must suffer for my namesake. I want you to take special note of Acts 9.15. Paul is Jesus' chosen instrument. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament letters and he was chosen by Jesus Christ. And I bring this out as you turn back to 1 Corinthians 11 to point out 
that people will say, well, Paul did not have Jesus' heart in these kinds of matters. Are you sure? Because Jesus said that Paul is my chosen instrument. So sometimes when people want to make these arguments that the Apostle Paul was a male chauvinist or uh, the passage is just simply cultural, there are some cultural elements, as we'll go on, to talk about head coverings and the possible veil and that kind of thing. But Paul is actually going back to creation order. And he is laying out an argument as to why we worship the way we do, why God has set up things the way that he has. Jesus Christ joyfully submits to his head, and there is an order. Kathy Keller writes, Justice in the end is whatever God decrees. So whether or not you are are able to see justice in divinely created gender roles depends largely on how much you trust, how much trust you have in God's character. If trust must be earned, she says, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed into the brow, your name on his cracked lips? If God can be trusted, then gender roles with all of God's gifts to human beings are to be rejoiced in and enjoyed, not endured and resented. Frankly, I think because we're in a fallen world and because we struggle sometimes with being what we should be to one another, we sometimes question maybe the way things are laid out or maybe there's another way to look at this. But I, I want to go back to verse 2. We'll come to verse 3, and we'll spend the bulk of our time there. But I want you to see that Paul starts out with a praise to the Corinthian church. He says, now, 1 Corinthians eleven two. I praise you, or I applaud you, because you remember me, you remember Paul, in everything, and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now, that seems a remarkable statement about a church that Paul's been correcting for several chapters, Right? But there were people in the Corinthian church that were following Paul's lead. Not everybody was. But there were people who were holding firmly to the teachings that Paul had passed on. When we introduced the book of 1 Corinthians, we mentioned that Paul was in Corinth for 18 months. A year and a half, he had taught the church. He had laid down the foundation. He had passed on some teachings. The New American Standard has them as traditions. But that word simply means to transmit teaching. It's the word paradosis. It means a transmission. Remember in that culture, oral uh, uh, teaching was transmitted to people before a lot of it was written down in the scriptures that we have today. So the church would first learn orally what God had for them. And Paul was passing on things of great importance to the church. These have to do with teachings, NIV. They're not necessarily traditions as we would have a tradition where we do certain things on holidays with our family. These are actually teachings that Paul passes on. They are literally precepts to be obeyed and reverenced. What are some of the precepts that Paul passed along? Skip down to verse 23 of chapter 11. In technical transmission language, Paul says, I received from the Lord, 1123, that which I also delivered to you. I received it, 
and I gave it to you, the church. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. One of the transmissions, one of the teachings that Paul passed along to the church was about the Lord's Supper, was about communion. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. This I received and delivered is also mentioned here in 1 Corinthians 15. I delivered it, I received it, and it has to do with the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, 15, 4, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. I want you to see that these are no light teachings that Paul transmitted by way of, we could say in quotes, traditions. He transmitted essential teaching back to 1 Corinthians 11 about the Lord's Supper and about the nature of the gospel. These are important things. And I want to say to you and to me that these are things that we've been entrusted with as the church of our time. And we are supposed to pass them on to the people, the flock of God, and the future generations to come. And we are to show fidelity, faithfulness to those doctrines. I believe that one day I'm going to answer to God for how faithful I was to the things that he called were the most important. Amen? I believe that it is incumbent upon pastors and parents and those who are the elders of our community, male and female, to make sure that we are passing along biblical truth and modeling biblical truth to generations to come. A parallel to that is mentioned in Psalm 78, where the fathers of Israel were called to pass along truth. Deuteronomy 6 says, share it when you walk by the way. Put it on the doorpost. You know, it should be everywhere in front of the people that we are raising, the children and grandchildren to come. This is what Paul passed on. And before he lays out a warning to the church, he says, look, you guys have been faithful to what I handed down to you. Now, some people believe that this is just a rhetorical device that Paul is using just to set them up for the warning. I don't think so. I think that this is genuine. I think that there were people in the Corinthian church that were genuinely trying and I think that whenever someone is doing well in an area of their Christian life, we should be careful to encourage them. Amen? <laughs> we have enough people bagging on us, right? And I know we get tired sometimes of feeling beat up in areas where, you know, look, we're, we're genuinely struggling. I think we can learn something from the Apostle Paul that if you see a younger Christian who has taken a good step in the right direction and overcome something or align their life more to biblical truth, that you would applaud that. That you would say to them, good job. Hey, I know you're struggling with some things, but good job that you have aligned your life to the Bible here. And I will say to you, for some of you that are new to the Bible, some of these things hit you and you're like, I don't know. I remember when my wife and I were new Christians, we would hear some preaching on the radio and some of it would ruffle the feathers. And that's because all we knew were the arguments of the world. All we knew were the ways of the world. And sometimes when we heard biblical truth, it was like, man, it was like getting smacked in the face. 
But then you have to wrestle with whether or not biblical truth is biblical truth. Amen? You have to wrestle with whether or not you're going to obey the Bible despite what the culture says. You have to ask the question, if you will say, like Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Despite what the culture is doing. Despite if a lot of Israel was going after other gods, which indeed was happening in Joshua's time. Joshua was charged to be courageous and to hold to the truth, to meditate on the word of God. And so these uh, traditions or teachings, NIV, would be in Paul's letters. In fact, in 2 Peter 3, I think it's verse 16, Peter calls Paul's writings scripture. So you could put it this way. These are transmitted precepts of apostolic doctrine to the Corinthian church that many were holding and doing well to hold to. That's the applause. That's the good job. Here's the warning. Verse 3. This is why we're only doing two verses this morning. But I want you to understand, 1 Corinthians 11.3, I want you to know, New King James, I want you to realize, NIV, that Christ is the head of every man. Now, for those of you who have studied the word head and ever done an exhaustive study on it, is the Greek word kephale. If you want the spelling, it's K-E-P-H-A-L-E. Volumes have been written on the Greek word kephale. Wayne Grudem has done an exhaustive study on this particular word, and he has, um, this is what one writer says, Grudem employs the thesaurus lingua graciae to examine 2,336 instances of the use of this word from the 8th century B.C. to the 4th century A.D. Now, how many of you want to study that? Now, this is where you say, Pastor Michael, thank you for doing some of this reading. Tell us what you think about the word. (laughs) All right? Here's, here's basically what's going on. The word head, in many of these ancient usages, means just that. It means your head on your body. That's pretty plain. But then the debate comes down to whether or not the word for head either means uh, the head of something, like preeminence or even rule, or whether it means source. Now, there is a camp that is arguing that the word head means source. If we were right to read it that way, let's take a look at how it would read. I want you to understand that Christ is the source of every man. Is he also the source of women? And that man is the source of a woman, and God is the source of Christ. Now, there are big problems with the last statement especially because If God is the source of Christ, if he created Christ, then what we have is we have a doctrine called subordinationism. And what it does is it downplays the deity of Christ and tries to make him a created being. Now that is not what we believe about the Trinity. We believe that Jesus is eternal God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And as you read a little bit more, and I won't bore you with the details, you come to find out that the argument for source is really not a good argument at all. 
And if you try to force it on this text, you end up with some pretty major problems, even compromising the Trinity and the deity of Christ. Now, the other way to look at this word is that head means just that. It means the head. In a metaphorical sense, like the head of a company or the head of a family. But this becomes a problem because then it teaches male headship and female what? Say it, ladies. Submit. This is that word. Submission. Does the Bible teach male headship and female submission? The answer, yes. Now, what does that mean, though? And where does it come from? And what is God's purpose in it? I want you to turn all the way to the book of Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. So God forms Adam out of the dust of the ground, and he breathes into him the breath of life. We looked at that beautiful picture of something that we said almost looks like a mouth-to-mouth operation. He forms Adam out of the dust with his incredible creative power and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And it's, a, it's an intimate act. And as the man is the focus, 2.15 of Genesis, the Lord God took the man, he put him into the Garden of Eden to what? To cultivate it and keep it. Adam's call was to provide an environment for growth, that's cultivation, and to keep it, that is to protect, it has implications of the watchman on the wall, 16 Genesis 2. The Lord God commanded the man, and he said, from every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, eat For in the day you eat from it, you will surely die. He commanded the man. He made him accountable, responsible. The Lord God said, it is not good, he initiated this, for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. The Hebrew word for helper there is literally an ally. It could be rendered a succor. The Bible actually says that God is the helper of Israel. He's her defense, her protection. He's got her back and her front. The word for helper, sometimes translated or thought of as helpmate, is really not, doesn't do it justice. Helper means someone who comes alongside. The Holy Spirit is our helper. And a wife is a helper to her husband. She is a succor. She supports him. She is his ally. Think of a military ally. Literally in the Hebrew picture language, the word means one who can see the enemy. That's an amazing meaning. It's one who has his back. One who will encourage and protect him. And this is the word for helper. Now, Adam is given responsibility, but notice, so he's naming the animals. The, God, the Lord God causes a deep sleep to fall upon the man. Some women, 21, wonder if he ever woke up, but that's for another sermon. <laughs> he slept. 
Then God took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh at that place. As the church is born out of Jesus' wounded side, the last Adam we've mentioned before, the first Adam gives birth, if you will, to the woman from his wounded side next to his heart. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man. He brought her to the man. God the Father is the first father of the bride. He walks her down the aisle to the man. The man says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall, shall be called woman because she was taken out of man, not from the sole of his foot, not from the top of his head, not to be above him or below him, but from next to his heart. And for this reason, because Eve was taken out of man next to his heart, a man shall leave his father and his mother, his first family, and be joined or cleave to his wife, and they, the two, shall become what? They'll become one flesh. In their oneness, there's a beauty. And the man is called in Ephesians 5, where Paul quotes Genesis 2, to love and cherish his wife as he does his own body. Any man who believes that male headship and female submission means that you can dominate and call your shots from your lazy boy chair is frankly just does not understand the Bible, nor do you understand God's heart. In fact, your call in male headship is to protect your bride. It's to cover her and to lead her toward Christ. Your call is to love her as Christ loves his church, which means you're willing to give up your life for her. It means you're willing to even to give up your rights for her. It means that you will love her in covenant faithfully. And this is where we need the grace of God. See, male headship and female submission is not something to be taboo. It's something to be actually celebrated. But I believe the devil has done a great job of making this about a battle instead of about beauty. And people chafe against this. I understand it. And I understand that in many cases it's not been what it's supposed to be. And can I apologize for men to you ladies who have not been what they've supposed to be? Who have taken these verses and abused them and dominated instead of dying for their bride? It's just wrong. But I will say this, that oftentimes when a male pastor is speaking on these things like I am, very little is mentioned about the female's part. And your part is to submit to your husband's leadership because that's the call that God has given him. And I was talking to a sister in Christ the other day about this subject, and here's simply what it means. Don't make it difficult on him. And all the ladies said, I will not say the amen to that. I know you will. Just follow his lead and trust God. Now, practically, I've been doing a lot of premarital counseling lately, and I tell couples, look, if a man, if male headship means that a man has to make decisions autonomous of you, like come home and say, honey, we're moving to Idaho, he is a fool. 
Honey, I just bought this brand new shiny red sports car. What do you think of it? Let's go for a drive. You know what our first reaction is going to be? Where are you sleeping tonight? And how much is that going to cost you per month? Right? You do not need to make decisions autonomous from your bride. The two of you are one. You talk about it. You partner in it. And if there's a tough decision and you don't have clarity, then you both pray about it to see what the Lord's will is in it. And in that rare case where a man may have to make a decision for a family, I will say to you, that's probably pretty rare. And when it happens, I have known many noble women who have said to their husbands, I will trust you to lead our family well. You know what that does for a man? He feels like he can fly. It puts an S on his chest. When our wives believe in us and applaud our leadership, we feel like we can leap tall buildings in a single bound. See, one of the things that men long for, ladies, is respect and honor. And I know that you ladies long for security. And sometimes you may pray to the Lord. You may say, Lord, where is he going to take us? <laughs> I understand that. And that's where your prayers for him are important. Let's turn back to 1 Corinthians 11. So, male headship is not a bad thing. It's a God thing. And that's the question that we're really wrestling with, is what does the Bible say about these issues? Do you, do you believe that if you align your life with God's order and God's will, that your life will be in order? They've done a lot of studies, and they've, they've asked questions about what people see as the uh, what's, the, what's the image that you have of the best family scenario? What comes to your mind? This is from a book a few years ago, but a lot of people said, leave it to Beaver. Is that the show? Wasn't that the show? How many of you remember that show? All right, there you go. It's working. Was an ideal family uh, picture for them? Now, it doesn't always work. We know. We know that in our society, oftentimes two people have to work and all of that. And we know that Proverbs 31 makes an argument for an enterprising woman who can work outside the home, etc. But that's what people said. They saw that as the ideal. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. Ladies, how many of you would say that it's a good thing? And I'll, I'll say to you that Men and women here, uh, the Greek words can be translated husband and wife. So how many of you ladies would say it's a good thing that Christ is the head of every husband? You see, he has a head. And husbands, your responsibility is to be faithful and submissive to your head, who is Christ. Now, hold that thought and turn over to Ephesians, which is a little bit to your right. Ephesians Chapter 5. So what does this mean? What did Paul, our same author, say? This looks like in a marriage relationship. Well, he says it in 
Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. That's the same word, kephale, Ephesians 5, 23, as in 1 Corinthians 11. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, keep reading. Love your wives, what your Bible say, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless." There are some commentators that believe that there's an implication in Ephesians 5 that the first thing that the husband, when he arrives before the Lord Jesus, his head will give an account for is how he loved his wife at the Bema Seat of Jesus Christ. The first person he's supposed to lead and disciple, cover and love, he will give an answer to his head, to his Lord at the Bema Seat. Remember, the Bema Seat is not about judgment for your sin. It's about reward for what you've done well. I want to ask you, gentlemen, if that's true, if you're going to give a first account for how you loved your wife on a scale of 1 to 10, how would she score you? <laughs> hmm. Something to think about. Now, it says, boy, it's quiet in here. I need to tell a joke or something just so it'll lighten up. 33, Ephesians 5. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even what? As himself. The Bible assumes you already love yourself. And the wife must see to it that she, this is what he longs for, ladies, that she respects her husband. One book uh, that's out there now is called Love and Respect. It's been written just based upon Ephesians 5.33 alone. Keep turning to your right. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Actually, chapter 3. Look at verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, Colossians 3.17, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat and drink, do all for the glory of God. Would any of these things be an issue if we were doing all for the glory of God? I doubt it. And he says these words, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Don't be resentful against your wife. As she submits to your leadership as is fitting in the Lord, you love her. And don't let resentment build in your heart. Keep short accounts. Practice good conflict resolution. Turn all the way to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. It's more to your right. What does male headship and female submission look like? Well, Peter deals with the ladies in 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 6. He repeats a lot of what we've already talked about. He uses Sarah as an example. Uh, 
1 Peter 3, 6, Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. So a lot of times in premarital counseling, that's what I recommend that the future wives do. Just call him Lord from now on. And that's usually when the lady gets up and wants to leave. And then I qualify by saying, I'm just joking. Anyway. <laughs> he says, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. And that's oftentimes where the struggle is. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. As with someone weaker, since she is a woman, she is literally the feminine one, show her honor. We're talking about male headship. What, is, what does it look like? As a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be what? Hindered. Imagine if you're a man and you go to the Lord and you, you pray for a co-worker that you really would like to see become a Christian. But you've been treating your wife terribly. I think the Lord would say to you, why don't you go love the one I gave to you first and model the gospel to her and then let's talk about your friend at work that you hope becomes a Christian. See, this is what the Bible's talking about. Now, she is the feminine one, and th this, this weaker vessel has to do with emotional and physical weakness. Um, when I've learned something over the years, and I think this will resonate with you, when my wife and I have a disagreement, my wife is much more impacted and hurt by that disagreement than I am. As a man, I can probably move on relatively quickly. But my wife being the feminine one, and I love her femininity, celebrate it, is much more hurt and wounded by an exchange that's a negative exchange because she's more sensitive. And guys, we need to remember this. Th this word weaker vessel has the idea of emotional, spiritual and emotional sensitivity and it does speak of physical strength, which goes back to the fact that you need to be a protector of her as her head. And I would bear this out by saying physical strength is part of this because if you arm wrestled your wife, I hope you would win. <laughs> and if you wouldn't, you're pathetic. That's all I can say. <laughs> that was a sort of a joke. Anyway, go back to 1 Corinthians 11. Thank you for the encouragement on row number two. <laughs> I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. Every day that I wake up, I thank the Lord for a new day and I, I pray a variation of this prayer. Lord Jesus, you are my Lord. By faith, I'm gonna put on the armor of God and I'm gonna ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit and would you love through me? Would you use me as someone who demonstrates who you are in this world that you've put around me? Can I say like Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and through me. Love through me, Lord. Help me to love my wife the way you love me. Help me to model what you've made me to be. And look, it's a battle. But I've got to go to my head, Christ, 
so that I can lead others well. And if that's been missing in your life, I would encourage you to get back to that basic structure. We've dealt with the Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman. We've borne that out. And God is the head of Christ. Now, this is celebrated in Philippians 2. We're going to finish there. A little bit more to your right, just past Ephesians, Philippians 2. Christ joyfully submitted to his Father, though equal in nature with God the Father, submitted to God the Father's plan for what? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, they will have everlasting life. Christ's submission to God the Father, though equal in nature with God the Father, means your salvation. And our submission to God in, these, in this creational order, in what God has planned for us, doesn't have those far-reaching of implications. It doesn't mean the salvation for all believers for all time, but it does mean some implications for our own lives. It can mean, like Paul said, I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that other people are going to get a glimpse of the gospel through my life. It can have sweeping implications as it does here. And as Paul once again celebrates the submission of Christ, he says these words, and we'll end with this. Let's go back to verse 3. He says, Do nothing from selfish, selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, the word form is morphe, very, in very nature God, that's who he is, he did not regard equality with God. To say he's equal with God means he must be God, but he did not regard equality with God, though he's equal in nature, a thing to be grasped or held on to. But he emptied himself, this is his voluntary submission to the Father, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross at high cost. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason, because of his voluntary submission, because of his obedience to death for the salvation of his bride, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And this includes believer and unbeliever alike. Christ is the head of everyone. So at the name of Jesus Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, under the earth, sweeping statements. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say work for your salvation 
He says, work it out. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Father, we come before you as a church body. Many married couples in this room, some who have the gift of singleness, some who are widows. And I believe, Lord, that if our first commitment is that Jesus is Lord of my life, the rest will follow. And Lord, I know you want to bless marriages. You, you designed it. You gave an order to it that it might be something beautiful that thrives. And in Ephesians 5, Paul will say that marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. Lord, I would ask for your mercy and forgiveness for times that I failed. And I'm sure I'd probably be speaking for all the folks in this room that we would say that there's been times that we've all failed to walk out what it means that you are our head, to walk out what it means to see the order in marriage. Thank you for your mercy and grace, your patience with us. You're an amazingly patient God. We want to lift up the folks in the church all around this country of ours, in this fellowship. We lift up our country to you. We lift up the folks around us who need to see the gospel in the way that we live. Help us, Lord, to yield more to you so that that can come through and it can be a natural thing and it can create some bridges and some opportunities as we earn the right to be heard by those who live around us and work around us. I pray for marriages that are hurting where there's been chaos and disorder and brokenness, that you'd bring healing. I pray that husbands and wives can embrace their role, play the part that God gave them, whether it's headship or being an ally, being second, and playing that part beautifully so that the picture of the gospel can come through. May your healing balm cover every heart, Lord, that just needs to know that you are the faithful husband to your church. You will never leave nor forsake your bride. Despite things that we do, mistakes that we've made, your grace is more than sufficient. And you give us grace upon grace in our everyday lives, in our actions, our thoughts, the things that we have failed to say and do. And we have breath in our lungs and an opportunity with a week ahead of us, Lord, to amend our lives to your ways. So would you help us all as we kneel before you, our great God and Savior, Fill us afresh. Give us the passion that we need to love those around us well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.